been here for any length of time, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and now we're here in Mark chapter 11, and we got here just in time uh, for Palm Sunday. We're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of Mark after this, and actually not picking it up again until the fall, uh, but, but we're going to look here this morning at Mark 11, 1 through 11. There's, a, there, there's always tense situations. Maybe you've had like tense situations even in the past week at your own house. Uh, maybe you've had those at work. Maybe you've seen them all over. We see those things happen globally. Uh, right now, if you were in eastern Ukraine uh, with, with kind of this standoff going on between uh, militia groups and, and Ukrainian police and Russian troops and all of that kind of thing, you would feel a lot of tension. And in those kind of environments, we know that all it takes is a quick little spark and stuff could just go and spread really, really quickly, right? Sometimes it, it, it could be an ugly thing, like it could be in Ukraine right now. But oftentimes, uh, a little spark in a tense situation can get things turned around in exactly the direction that they need to go. Uh, for example, um, in, in uh, the early 1500s, a man by the name of Martin Luther, uh, loving the church but, but being really disappointed in the direction that it was headed, um, taped, or not, he didn't tape, he didn't have tape. He got out of Scott tape in 1521. Uh, no, he didn't. He had uh, a nail, and he took a nail, and he had written these 95 theses, and he nailed those to a door at a church in Wittenberg, okay? And, and that was what many people would point to as the thing, the event, the relatively small event, but the spark that led to the Protestant Reformation. Many would look back at the Boston Massacre, maybe, as the event that sparked the American Revolution. Or, or maybe, even in more recent history, we could point back to Rosa Parks deciding not to give up her seat on the bus as maybe what many people would refer to as the spark that led to the Civil Rights Movement. Now, all of these things, these, these, these sparks in the midst of a time of high tension and expectation, they brought about positive changes that still benefit us in some way today. But none of these sparks... And the events that followed them can compare with the spark that is going to be lit today as we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem. And the events that will follow on Friday and on that Sunday that would forever change the course of history. And for those of us who trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior would forever change our eternity. And so, this is huge. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. If you're able to, please stand as we read God's word. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away. We found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. bulletin, as usual, has uh, both a spot for you to take notes during the sermon, if that's helpful for you, and then application guide a bit different this week. You can check that out. I might mention it later as well, but it's a little bit different this week with the application guide. I encourage you to follow along there. I want to give you a little context um, that's going to help us, I think, understand this passage a little bit better as we go into it. Um, The whole of the Christian faith rests on the life, death, and resurrection of that is, that is what is in view as the passage that we just read this morning is taking place. The death and resurrection of Jesus that's about to come. Now, as we've been going through the, the Gospel of Mark, it's been a while now since we've been in Mark chapter 8. But in Mark chapter 8, you remember, there was a big turning point in Mark's Gospel as Peter, on behalf of the other disciples, as Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, right? The king. Peter understands this at least to some degree, and he confesses it, and from that point on, everything changes. Geographically, they begin to head towards Jerusalem, and Jesus, starting then, will predict three times the purpose for his coming, that he has come to die and then to rise again. Each time that Jesus gives this prediction, you remember the disciples understanding is pretty limited and their response is not uh, appropriate to what he has just said. But everything hinges on this. And then we got to the almost the end of chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is very explicit in saying the purpose for his coming. Why did Jesus come? He says, even the Son of Man, which is how he often referred to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and, what? To give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus had come for. Jesus knew that this was his purpose in coming, and he is very deliberately on the road now to Jerusalem. Last week we saw him make a stop in Jericho where he healed a blind man named Bartimaeus, who initially, remember, was sitting by the road and now has gotten up. He's, his sight has been restored, and he's on the road with Jesus. And now we get to the passage that we are at this morning. And we realize, maybe just looking back, stepping back for a second, and realizing that it's, I don't know, it's taken us like a a year uh, with a couple of breaks to get uh, through the first ten chapters of the Gospel of Mark. This is about three years worth of time that's covered in Mark chapters 1 through 10. About three years of time. Now Mark chapter 11 through 16, all of that will take place, like the last about third of the book of Mark takes place in one week. That's how important this week is. Three years to do Mark chapters 1 through 10, and now Mark chapters 11 through 16 to basically cover one week's worth of time. This week is extremely important in the life of the church. Everything we do really hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, I just want to set the stage as we get into this passage this morning that we understand that what Jesus is doing here is the spark that is going to set about the course of events that will happen throughout the remainder of this week that change everything. And 
So, Mark chapter 11, verse 1, here's what we read. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. Okay, so the setting is this. Jesus and his disciples have gotten to just outside of Jerusalem, and they're up on a mountain. Many monumental things in Scripture, you might remember, take place or begin at a mountain. And, and that's the case here again, that Jesus on this Mount of Olives with his disciples, they're about 300 feet now. Remember, when they were in Jericho, they were quite a ways below Jerusalem as far as sea level goes, elevation. Now they're actually about 300 feet above Jerusalem, and they're about to descend down into Jerusalem. They're going to have a little processional as they enter Jerusalem. Interestingly, um, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, this is about 600 years before uh, all of this took place, Ezekiel has this prophecy in which he records uh, a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the city of Jerusalem and going up to the Mount of Olives. That's the vision that, that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter 11. The glory of the Lord leaves the city of Jerusalem and comes to rest on the Mount of Olives. I don't think it's coincidental now that as Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem, he's doing so from the Mount of Olives. The King of Glory is about to come and enter. Many associated the Mount of Olives, had some association in their mind between the Mount of Olives and the Messiah. So, Jesus is about to enter, and he's got a very specific and deliberate plan. Did you notice that when I was reading this passage? That Jesus' plan is very specific. Now, any other time where Jesus in, in the Gospels has had like a, a kind of a specific plan, it's usually a plan for how to escape or how to kind of downplay his presence somewhere because the time had not yet come. This is really unique, what we see here. Because now, as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, He's being very deliberate and specific with his plan about how he's going to enter. He's actually being very intentional in, in the way in which he'll enter. Jesus has never been ever concerned about making any sort of grand entrance that we've seen so far, right? But now, Jesus is doing something very deliberate. And we might look at it and say, well, that's just a weird plan. Like, if you're going to announce something to all of these, these crowds who are wondering all sorts of things, you're going to announce something important, this seems like a strange way to do it. This, this plan that Jesus has that we saw in verses 2 to 6, you look at it again. Jesus said, sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. The other gospels let us know that this is a colt of a donkey. Okay? Untie it and bring it. Okay, interesting plan that Jesus has here. Um, I want you to go into a city. There's going to be a colt, and the colt of a donkey tied there. I want you to untie it and bring it. And even specifically, if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And so they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside of the street, and they untied it. And like Jesus suggested might happen, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. That's a lot of verses. Remember, Mark is always very short in, 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 in the way that he speaks about things. He always gives the concise account. But he uses a lot of verses here to talk about these preparations that are being made by Jesus. They're very, very deliberate preparations. And we might say, well, 
why, why the cult of a donkey? What is he trying to say with that? I mean, donkeys are not exactly like the most dignified animal. We laugh at donkeys. Just in town last week or the week before, people were riding around on donkeys trying to play basketball. And the whole point was that people, I think it was a fundraiser, but people would just laugh at them. And so we think donkeys are kind of funny. They're not like this dignified animal suitable for a king, right? But Jesus was very specific. He wanted to ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And why? Why was Jesus going to do this? Well, a couple of things that we could point to. One would be in Genesis 49. Uh, we don't. We won't turn there. But in Genesis 49, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, uh, is blessing his 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of his sons is named Judah. That is the tribe from which Jesus will descend. The tribe of Judah. And in his blessing over Judah, which is just four verses, verses 8 through 11, in his blessing over his son Judah, he mentions both a donkey and a colt. And then. We get very specific when we get to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Last Palm Sunday, this is where we were. We spent all of our time in the book of Zechariah. You can turn back there for a moment if you would. If you're in Mark, then you go back and it's Matthew, and then it's the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and then Zechariah. So it's just a couple books back. The prophet Zechariah, again, a little over 500 years before Jesus came. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You're wondering, right, why, why is Jesus being so specific and deliberate to get this donkey colt to ride into Jerusalem on? Well, Zechariah 9.9 really gives us that answer. Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy from this prophet, Zechariah, from God through the prophet, says this. In Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Okay, so... So, so imagine the Jewish people longing for this king to be coming, right? And, and, and the prophecy says this king will come to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Well, how is he going to come? Look at humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's not going to come riding a war horse like a knight in shining armor. He is going to come humbly, riding on a colt, on, a, on the colt of a donkey, as he comes into town. An interesting way, but actually at that time, they didn't, they, they didn't make fun of donkeys maybe as much as we do now. Donkeys were often animals that were ridden by kings, and so, so this, was, this was not a, a totally uncommon kind of thing in that day, but Jesus very specifically wants to make his entrance into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and he's planning all of this. Even all of these deliberate preparations can cause a buzz. Listen, if you've ever um, gotten married, maybe maybe you look forward to your wedding, you know, even maybe since you were a little person even. Um, but when that final week comes, when like the week of the wedding comes, you have all these final preparations to be made. There's just kind of this buzz in the air, right? That as, as deliberate preparations begin to be made, there's just something that's changing in the air. I remember in, in the year 2000, and I maybe mentioned this before, but in the year 2000, um, uh, Kirsten and I lived in Orange City, and I uh, worked at a, at a hotel there. And it was uh, during the campaign season, and George W. Bush was going to come to town, and he was going to stay at the hotel that I worked at. And, and so not only at that hotel, but really all throughout town, there was quite a buzz. Um, 
as preparations, very deliberate preparations were being made for this person to come into town. Just a, a few months ago, when our historic theater reopened here in Iowa Falls, it was announced that, that Hugh Jackman would be here to open up his movie Prisoners. And, and so that creates quite a buzz and quite a stir in town as all these deliberate preparations are being made, right? Preparations for parking and there's cleaning being done and all sorts of other things. That's a bit of the kind of environment um, that, that's beginning to be stirred here on the outskirts of Jerusalem as Jesus makes all these preparations. I want us to understand before we read the rest of this passage a little more about what the feel would have been like in Jerusalem because I think it's so hard for us to, to put ourselves there. Especially if you've been in church for a long time, you've heard the Palm Sunday stuff over and over again, maybe every year, and it's starting to lose its effect maybe on you a little bit. But I think it would be really helpful for us to understand what it actually felt like to be in Jerusalem at that time. So here's what it was like in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it was holiday season. It was about time for the Passover. And at this time of year, there would people, that pilgrims that would be coming from all sorts of regions into making a pilgrimage into Jerusalem. So, so you can kind of just imagine all these preparations being made in the temple and in homes all throughout Jerusalem for all these extra people who are coming into town for this holiday. So there's that kind of like um, just environment of expectation and maybe tension and excitement, right, as all these people come together in Jerusalem. But even in the midst of that, add to that feel now, imagine that feel, but then imagine adding to that there are Romans there. So there's this constant feel amongst the Jewish people that their home is not really their home, right? Because they're occupied by the Romans. And so everything they're doing is done under the watchful eye of some Romans who have been stationed there in Jerusalem. The guards, if you put yourself in the shoes of the guards, they're probably on high alert thinking, this is a security risk, right? I mean, they're trying to maintain order here in the city of Jerusalem, but now the population of the city is swelling as pilgrims come from all over the place, and it's already a tense time, especially tense for those who call themselves Pharisees or scribes, the religious leaders of that day. They have long seen Jesus as a threat. Remember, we've seen that all throughout the Gospel of Mark. They've seen Jesus as a threat, but now Jesus, this great threat, is showing up in Jerusalem. They've gone out before to hear him and to confront him, ask him questions, try to trap him. But now, word has gotten, I'm sure, to them that he's coming to Jerusalem. And so tension is high because they want him dead. They see him as a threat. And they want him to die. But the, Jesus' popularity keeps rising and rising. And so they, they don't know what to do. John's gospel in John chapter 12 seems to point to the fact that these guys are just overwhelmed and intimidated a bit. Do you understand the kind of environment that Jesus is preparing to enter? It is high tension, excitement, lots of people, lots of different expectations. Some people believing that he's the Messiah, that he's come to save them, to rescue them from the Romans. You've got the Romans there. You've got the, the religious leaders who want him dead, but he's too popular. They don't know how to do it. It is, it is a pretty highly volatile kind of situation that Jesus is about to ride into as he comes to Jerusalem. And so, his time has come. He is the Messiah. He is the King. The spark has been lit. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 says this. 
and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut in the field. What do you see here? You see Jesus getting the royal treatment from the crowd. The crowd seeing Jesus and seeing maybe some of them understanding, some of them probably not really understanding what it is that he's attempting to do. They are they are doing something that was kind of customary. It had been customary for a long time. They didn't they didn't want Jesus to just sit bareback on the donkey, and so they laid their cloaks on the donkey. They didn't want even the donkey that he was riding on to walk on the bare ground, so they would lay their cloaks on the ground before him. You can read about it way back even in 2 Kings chapter 9, I think it is. Yeah, 2 Kings 9.13 says this, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare step, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. As, as a king was crowned, they didn't want that king to walk on bare steps. And so they laid their garments on the ground so he could walk in those. They're doing the same thing here with King Jesus. Cloaks are being laid out. Branches are being cut and waved. And it's still our custom, really, in our day to do something kind of similar. Maybe before a bride walks in, there would be some rose petals that are laid uh, before her. Or, or as a celebrity comes, a red carpet is literally rolled out for them. And a crowd gathers midst of Jesus getting this colt of a donkey for him to ride on, people laying down cloaks, people waving branches, a crowd begins to gather. They're going to begin this procession down to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know who's in the crowd. Uh, uh, presumably, it's mostly Jewish people. It could be Bartimaeus. He might be one of the people in the crowd, the man who for years had been unable to see, but Jesus had just restored his sight. And it says he got up and he followed him on the way, so it's likely that that Bartimaeus was one of the people here in the crowd. It could be Lazarus. We don't read that story. Mark doesn't include that. But in John chapter 11, just before the triumphal entry, Jesus had raised a man from the dead, a man named Lazarus. Maybe he was here with Jesus and part of the crowd as well. You've got Jesus' disciples there, a large crowd. And anytime you have a large crowd, you've got a whole bunch of different things going on at once. And so... Let's look at verses 9 and 10. The crowd gets loud. Check it out. Verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed, so you get the picture, large crowd. Jesus is in the middle of it, not at the front of it, not behind it, but in the middle of it. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting. Okay, They were not singing calm songs. They were shouting, chanting perhaps, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What were they shouting about? What is this? What is these? What, what are they saying? Really two things. Two things that the crowd is shouting about here. One is they're proclaiming what Jesus came to do. They're crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means save us. So when we sing, Hosanna, when they were crying out, Hosanna, that's what we're saying. We're saying, save us. Save us. To cry out, to be saved. Now, this was a customary greeting around the time of Passover. This wasn't unique to Jesus showing up. This was a customary greeting. And so, some people during this time, probably understanding that as they're crying out, save us, they're actually addressing Jesus himself because they believe that he's the Messiah. There's other people in the crowd, pretty clueless, it's just what we always say at this time of year. 
right? So they're just crying out Hosanna because it's kind of like when we say Merry Christmas, right? Like when we say Merry Christmas, some of us, when we say Merry Christmas, we're thinking of Christ. Other people say Merry Christmas because it's just, well, I mean, it's what people used to say, but it's what, it's what most people still say, right? They're just saying it. They don't really mean anything by it. You just say it. So I'm sure in the crowd on this day, there are those who are crying out, save us because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who has come to save them and deliver them from bondage. Even though they probably don't understand exactly how he's going to do it. But then there's others in the crowd that they're just crying out Hosanna because it's what they always do. Then, they're not only proclaiming what Jesus came to do, but they're proclaiming who Jesus was. What else are they saying? Look at verses 9 and 10. They're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now again, we get kind of a glimpse at at, uh, kind of the mixed expectations that the crowd has at this point. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this was not unique to Jesus showing up. This was this was Psalm 118.26. This is right out of their hymn book, right? This was, this was number 118 in the hymn book, and this was always the hymn that they sang leading up to Passover. So this is not unique that they're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord of the Lord. This was their normal song. This is their Christmas carol, if you will, of that time. But some, again, who are singing this, likely understand that Jesus is the one to whom they're referring, that he is the one who has been sent by God to be their Messiah. Others are just saying it because it's what they always say at that time of year. There's a little bit of confusion. Messianic language would have been uh, referring to Jesus as son of David. When they would use the term son of David, that usually referred to the Messiah. But they're saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. That just shows that maybe there was a little bit of uh, misunderstanding and misguided expectations that the people had. That that they were expecting um, Jesus to come and usher in the kingdom of David, their father. But Jesus was the son of David coming into usher, coming to usher in the kingdom of God. That's the difference. But again, we've got a mix of people. We've got a riled up crowd. Some hailing Jesus as the Messiah. Some just excited about the holiday. Can you feel the tension that's rising here? Jesus is coming as king. If you're a Roman person, you're maybe a little bit threatened as you see him being hailed as king and not Caesar. You wonder what you're going to do about this. Some of them ready for Jesus to come and overthrow the Roman government. That's what they thought he was coming to do. That's what their Messiah was about, they thought. He's coming into this environment in this way, and we know that something's going to happen. There's going to be a spark, right? I mean, just kind of like some of these other situations we're going to say. It's like the situation is right for something to blow up here pretty soon. And as one person said, it seems like there's only two options at this point. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem in this environment, in this way, one of two things can happen. One, he's going to come and deliver God's people. Or two, he's going to be put to death. What most people don't understand at this point is he's going to do both. It's not an either or. It's not, is Jesus going to come and deliver God's people, or is he going to be put to death? It is Jesus is coming to deliver God's people by being put to death. Very few people at this time would understand that that's what he was coming for. And we've got one more verse, verse 11. Verse 11 says this, 
he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Verse 11 is a little bit anticlimactic. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany, kind of like a little suburb, I guess, of Jerusalem. Jesus comes, this grand entrance, people misunderstanding him to be the Messiah, the king, hailing him as king, all sorts of celebration, gets into town, goes into the temple, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? He looks around, says, let's go to bed. And they turn around, go back to their place they were staying in Bethany, and he'll be back in the morning. And when he comes back in the morning, he's going to surprise them. Now, we're not going to get to this until next fall, unless you read it on your own this week, which I'd encourage you to do. The guide I put in the bulletin will kind of walk you through the rest of the Gospel of Mark that you're reading on each day, what would have been happening on that day for the rest of this week. I encourage you to do that. Um, but Jesus kind of looks at the situation. He's going to come back in the morning. But the stage is set. It is this week. The time has come. The tensions have risen, and they're going to rise even higher. A betrayal is going to be planned, and Jesus is going to be arrested and put to death. The question for you as we look at this passage this morning is this. Have you welcomed the coming King Jesus? Listen, it's so easy for us, especially in this country where, where most people at least have some kind of background uh, in, in being religious in some way. So, so this week coming up is going to be one of the weeks where people who don't even normally come to church are going to be coming to church, right? So there's kind of some, well, this is what we ought to do. We're often, we're, I think, a lot like the crowds that we see here that there are many in the crowd who might even come along, and you might be here this morning because it's just what you do. It's tradition. And you're going to sing the words of the songs that are on there because everybody else is singing the words of the songs that are on the screen. But it's very possible that many who are a part of the crowd are just going through the motions because it's what we always do at this time of year. But you don't really understand yet who Jesus actually is. You don't really understand yet that He is the King. He is the Rescuer. And so you're singing some songs and you're going through some motions. But do you really believe that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? That He is worthy of your full and complete devotion and worship in your whole life? Do you believe that? Or are you just one of the crowd going through the motions? Listen, Jesus is worthy of much more than our half-hearted worship. If that's all you have, at this point, would you spend some time this week just reading Scripture? We believe in the power of God's Word to do things with people. So, so if you're kind of feeling like, I, I just, I'm just not feeling it. I don't even know. I don't even know if I really know Jesus. I don't even know if I'm really living as though He is my Lord and Savior, would you spend some time just in the Word this week? Go through that outline that I put in the bulletin. Believe in the power of God's Word that as you as you read and start to understand what it was that Jesus came for, that it might change you. And then would you come back on Friday? Come back on Friday. I don't know what you have going on this week, but Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem now, and we know why He came. He came that he might die. That's why he came. These people who are at this moment crying out, Hosanna, save us. He 
before the week is over, there will be another crowd that's crying out. Maybe some of these same people crucify him. There's a lot that's going to change over the course of a week. We need to be here together on Friday. By the end of the week, this king that they're now laying down cloaks for and waving branches at, this king will be mocked. They'll put on a fake robe and a crown made out of thorns, and they will mock him and flog him and spit on him and beat him, and his blood will be poured out as he gets nailed to a cross of wood. And as unpleasant as that is to think about, as much as we'd like to just show up again next Sunday and celebrate his resurrection, his resurrection doesn't mean a whole lot if he doesn't die first. Resurrection is not even possible without death. And we need to, before we come and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we need to get together again and remember the death of Jesus and what it accomplished for us. We need to be reminded of the power of the cross. So I hope um, that, 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 that you make it a priority. If you're not going to be here, then, then to be somewhere else or do something to spend some time on Friday meditating on the work of Christ on the cross and all that, all the benefits that come to us from it.